Well, this morning as we begin, I first want to say and share that it is really good to be preparing for a sermon for Sunday in many different ways. I miss it. Um, It's wonderful because it's a time to be refreshed in God's Word. It's a time for when your own soul is just drawn into the depths of uh, of God, uh, His goodness and His greatness. It's a time when you just get to see things in the text that you don't always get to see because I don't think many of us sit down and study a passage for 20-ish hours a week. We have jobs to go to, we have families to take care of. Here, I had the opportunity this week, and I want to share with you the findings and the truth of God's Word with you this morning from Ezra chapter 6. And as I was thinking over this passage, I thought of things that we experience in our own life, and there's two types of scenarios that we experience in our life. One of the scenarios is when things we think should be moving quicker and faster than they really are. That's typically where we find ourselves in a hurry 21st century with iPhones and technology all around us is things should be moving faster than they really are. And the second one that is typically less anticipated and we don't often come across is when things do move quicker than they really are supposed to. And when that does happen in our life, we tend to rejoice and we're grateful for that that the raise that we got in our life was faster. It was less than five years. That the kids are a little bit more obedient and I thought it was going to take an extra few years, but here they are coming out of the door saying, yes, Papa, yes, Mama, what would you like for me to do? That the church is growing spiritually faster. We were anticipating a you know, two-year projection, but now we're here doing it at three months. You see, when we look at uh, this last section of the book of Ezra, what we see here is that things are moving faster than anticipated because there is someone behind the scenes. Now, to put this a little bit into perspective, I want you to think of the current Golden State Warriors 2023. But it was not always like this because the word championship was not even on the tips of their tongues even a decade ago. It was a slow beginning. 2009, Steph Curry gets drafted. Yet he is scrawny and has ankle issues. 2011, Clay Thompson, a sharpshooter, gets drafted. And then our favorite player in the Golden State Warriors, Draymond Green, bully Draymond Green, gets drafted. The heart of the team. And he is not drafted number one, two, or three, but 30-something. And who would have thought that in just two to three years of these three players being together, they would win their first championship in 2015? They were injury plagued. They were not on the radar of being the ones who would make it out of all of the teams in the NBA. But there's something else that happened during this time that not many people think about. And that is that in 2010, Joe Laker became the new owner of the Golden State Warriors. And he had championship aspirations from day one. And the way that he ran the organization led to all the decisions that were made to get them to the place where they wanted to be. You see, it was a combination of right draft picks, talents, a new era of the three-pointer, and behind the scenes, a new owner, an unexpected and we would say unprecedented dynasty. And this morning, as we're, we're looking at 
Ezra chapter 6, what does basketball and Ezra 6 have in common? And it is that things happen unexpectedly because we serve a great and glorious God who is the God of the unexpected. You see, at the end of chapter 6, it was not too many years earlier that the people of Israel were in exile, that their temple system looked dead and buried, that they were in a hopeless state, that they were far away from home, which is how chapter 1 begins. And now at the end of chapter 6, we read these words in verse 15. This house, the temple, was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. But the question is, how did this come to pass? Who was the Joe Lacob of Ezra 6? And obviously, we all know the answer. It was God. You see, in verse 14, we, we read, they finished their building by the decree of Israel, by the decree of God of Israel. And at the end of verse 22, we see these words, they kept the Feast of the Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he hated them in the work. We see God's hand throughout all of this. God is the one who is orchestrating it. Really, history is his story. He is fulfilling his purposes. And so our God is the God of the unexpected. <clears throat> and I want to encourage you this morning that when life looks grim and when life looks dull and when life looks like it's moving slower than you expected, the situation that you're in or circumstance is not what you would desire that God is still on His throne, that God still cares for you, and that God loves you. That God is working behind the scenes, as we will see in our passage this morning, not only for our good, but ultimately for His glory. And it's because of God's providence that we are able to worship Him. And so our three sections this morning are going to be first looking at the temple is completed, then we're going to look at how the temple is dedicated. And lastly, what is the response of the people after the temple is dedicated? And that is adoration and worship of God and joyful praise. And so I want to call you to this one idea this morning. Remember God's works. Remember God's works. Joyful worship through perpetual providence. That's a proposition if we can put the slide back a little bit. Remember God's works, joyful worship through perpetual providence, perpetual, ongoing providence of God in the life of Israel. Joyful worship happens because of God's providence, because God meets us at the mountaintops and in the valleys, and He leads us in the way that He would desire. And so we ought to remember God's works. And so, how does God bring about His providence? That's the question I want to answer together with you this morning. How does God bring about His providence? And the very first thing that we see in verse 13 is God's tools. God's tools. God uses weak men to fulfill His purposes. The purpose of God is to enable us to worship Him. How does He accomplish that? We see here that the scene grows in depth and momentum as the lesser leaders, the elders, 
are taking up the work and pressing on to finish it, while in the background we have the kings with their decrees and in the apex, the God of Israel. This is the model that God uses. This is the way that God works. As we already read, we want to read again in verse 14, and the elders of the Jews built, and the second detail that the author highlights, prospered, how? Through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by the decree of God. So the elders of the Jews built. It was the people. They were not builders. They were not architects. They were elders. They were there to oversee the people. They were shepherds and elders and overseer. He watches over the flock. An elder in the Old Testament literally in the Hebrew means gray-haired. So the the gray-haired men were the ones who were at the forefront of completing this task of finishing the temple. Throughout all of the opposition that was happening through people who were saying, let us join you, we were here to help you, through the direct opposition that was going on, you would think that they would just lay down and they would quit, that they would give in to the pressure, that they would say it is too hard to fulfill the promise of God to obey Him and complete the temple. But we see here that the power does not belong to us, the power belongs to God. That is the principle. God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. God uses weak men to fulfill great purposes. Oh, this just reminds me of Paul in the New Testament, how he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We are the jars of clay. And the treasure is the gospel. The treasure is Christ in jars of clay. So why? So the surpassing glory belongs to God and not to us. We see when the temple is ultimately complete, we see the celebration beginning of verse 19 with the Passover. And what is happening there? The people are remembering the person and the work of God, what He did in this whole process. So the question is, how are these elders able to accomplish this work? We know they're weak in themselves. How would they be able to fulfill this great task? The same two factors that we saw in our last section are in view here again. The first one is the ministry of the Word, and secondly, it is God behind the scenes enabling this worship to happen. So the way that this happens, or how it happens, is the Word. Look with me again in verse 14. The Jews built and prospered, how? Through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah. The elders built and prospered because of the Word of God. God prophesied that this would happen, and because God prophesied this would happen, they began to work on it. They built, but not only did they build, they also prospered. You see, God's Word does what it does because it is what it is. We know that God's Word is perfect, therefore it revives the soul. We know that God's Word is wise, making the simple ones have knowledge. This is a timeless principle. Not only did they build it, but they prospered. The reason is because this was God's plan all along. God said this would happen. 
Therefore, all that the exiles had to do was just follow through on God's word. The only reason was through the prophet sign of Haggai. So God already set the table. All that was needed to happen was for man to obey his word. He orchestrated the king. He orchestrated the governor. He orchestrated the timing. But what was needed is faith, faith of these elders to be the ones who would spearhead the task and complete it. The ones who would obey and trust that God's word is true and it will come to pass. The author of Hebrews gives us the principle of what this passage is talking about, the principle by which many in the Old Testament live by faith. And this is how Hebrews 11 begins. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Think about that. Faith is confidence in what we hope for, assurance in that which we do not see. We have assurance in that which we do not see. We have confidence, meaning a foundation, in what we hope for. This is what the elders were doing. It was the prophesying of Haggai the prophet. They believed the prophecies of the Lord and they acted upon them. Now, faith is always hardest when life seems at its worst. Typically, when life is at its worst, we live by another principle of fear. Fear causes us to sink. Fear causes us to give up. In a hard place in life, fear sinks. It is tough that in a hard place of life, we would be hopeful. We would have great faith that things are going to turn around, yet this is exactly what the elders are experiencing. Six chapters ago, we see how things were at their worst. They were exiles. They're not in their home country. Think of the person who is a prisoner of war. They're in a broken situation. They are broken. They are an incarcerated people. Their temple system is or looks dead and buried. But only a few years later, they're celebrating the Passover. As we look at just even this one verse and we look at these elders, we see that the principle that they live by is that of living like a historian and not living like a detective. A detective would say, how are we going to figure this out and fix this situation? A detective would look at all of the details of why my kids are not sleeping through the night, of why I am not having so many friends in the church. A detective would look at a tough work situation and say, how can I turn this around? A historian would look at it all and say, I know that in the past God has been faithful, God has been good, and that He's going to lead me through all of these circumstances in my life. The whole situation was impossible, but that is the God we serve. He's the one who does the impossible. So before we move on, I have a simple question. How firm are you standing on the promises of God? How firm are you standing on the promises of God? Not only did this happen because of the Word of God, but this also happened because of God Himself. It happened by the decree of God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Clearly, God is the one who decreed this to happen. 
and he has decrees that cannot be thwarted. We read in Proverbs 21, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. What a comfort that is for us this morning. He turns the hearts of the kings wherever he wishes. But why is it also recorded that this happened by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes in verse 14? The only reason these kings and rulers decreed anything is because God first and foremost decreed what He decreed. The reason why the presidents and uh, those who are rulers in, in governments and those who are ruling over nations decree anything is because God first decreed what He decrees, and then man decrees because they're fulfilling God's purpose. So why is Artaxerxes mentioned in this passage? Because he was the king who reigned in Ezra's day when a different project was underway. And later right here in the next chapter we are going to read, he's the one that sends Ezra back with all the Jews who desire to go back. And later he allows Nehemiah to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. Now, before we go on to our next point, I want to notice the connection here between prospering of the work and the prophesying of the prophets. The prospering of work and the prophesying of the prophets. The principle here is that those who heed the Lord's word are those who prosper. Psalm 1 verse 3 and Joshua 1 verse 8 are two passages that come to mind. Psalm 1 verse 3 speaks about the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but in verse 2, but in a strong contrast, his delight is in the law of God. And on his law he meditates day and night. In verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. The way that God's people prospered in Ezra 6 and the rebuilding of the temple is the same way that those who believe in the Lord and are faithful to His promises will continue to prosper to this day, including the church of the 21st century. It is by believing the promises of God, delighting in the law of the Lord, standing on these promises. And what does Paul say? In Corinthians, that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. They find their fulfillment in Christ Himself. And so we have assurance that all God's promises are sealed by the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ, that they will occur, they will happen. Joshua 1.8 is another passage closer to the book of Ezra. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do. So we meditate on God's Word, but there's another caveat, there's another detail here in verse 8. Be careful to do according to all that is written in it. So there's action, there's belief. To believe is to act. Faith acts all that is written in it. And then here is God's promise, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So right here in the first few verses of our opening passage, we see the elders trusting in God's Word. 
that the prophecy is being fulfilled, that they, knowing what God said will come to pass, are acting in light of that. They're not waiting for some kind of sign. They're saying, Lord, you said this would happen, and because of what you said, I will take a step of faith and act upon it. God's work on behalf of Ezra's generation is like His work on behalf of the first generation that returned and built the temple, and just like it is for us today. Because I want you to hear this this morning, that God's sovereign rule is not an abstract power or force. God's providence, God's sovereign rule is not an abstract power or force that just kind of works things randomly. God's sovereign rule and providence is focused on His people. What is the purpose of the rebuilding of the temple? It's for the people, for God to draw them back to Himself, for them to forsake the idol worship, which is why they went into exile. It is God to be in connection with His people. And look at Ephesians, or just listen to Ephesians 1. The culmination of that chapter of the power of God, He put all things under Christ's feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. The connection of Christ's power and us, the church as His people, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Remember the prayer to know the height, depth, love of God in Ephesians 3. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. He can do far more abundantly. What is His power directed toward? Or who is it directed toward? Directed toward us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. God has a key purpose in fulfilling and revealing His power. And that key purpose is that His people might come to Him and worship Him. And He is the one who enables this to happen. I cannot help but just stop and pause here for a moment and just think about the many times that God has stopped us in our life when we were strained from Him, when we were cold-hearted. Maybe that is some of you this morning where you might be lukewarm. And God loves you enough to intervene with His great power, not just to show His great power, but to do what? To draw you to Himself so that you may worship Him again. And this leads us to the next point of God's desire. God's desire is to draw men. God's tool is weak men, God's desire is to draw men. And when I mean men, I'm incorporating women, weak people. His desire is to draw people. And this is where the temple is dedicated. And we see that here, if you would look with me, in verse 16. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles did what? Celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Celebration. It is complete. Many, many years of work, opposition, it is complete, it is finished. But the temple completed is somewhat anticlimactic. It is not fully complete and finished. It kind of points us forward to something. Because here in these verses of 16 through 18, there's one thing that does not happen that happened when Solomon's temple was built. And what is that? God's glory does not descend 
on the temple. And there's a reason for this, and we're going to see that toward the end of this section. But first, I want you to see that God is drawing men to himself has always been his purpose. The temple is not an end to the, in itself. The temple serves a greater purpose. The temple is just a means to a greater end that God has. And what is that greater end? It's that people would worship him. And so God's desire is to draw man first because he is jealous for his glory. I want you to just follow along with me as I flesh this out. God is jealous for his glory, therefore he draws people to himself. In uh, Isaiah 43, we read these words, But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. And here's a key line. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The reason why God is sovereign over rebuilding the temple is because God is sovereign and He cares that He is worshipped. God is overseeing the work of the temple because God is worthy of worship, but He is zealous for His glory. We read in Isaiah, My glory I will not give to another. God desires to be revered, honored, and deemed worthy of your time, of your talents, of your energy. But when we hear these words that God is zealous for His glory, God wants to be glorified, wouldn't we ask the question, why is God so egocentric? Why is God all about Himself? Look at me. Look how glorious I am. Look what I have accomplished. Why does He call us? Glorify me, glorify me, glorify me, glorify me. There was a reason to this. Because the reality is that we find our greatest satisfaction in who He is and in His presence. He gets the glory and we are benefited by it. I'm going to give you a couple of illustrations of what this looks like. Imagine that you have an illness. And it is something that is not easy to cure. It is very rare. And you go to online to Google to find some of the greatest doctors that this world has to offer. And you find that they are right over here at Stanford Medical Center. And you go to the doctors and you talk with them and they tell you this is what you need to do to cure, to have, you, to have a cure. But you take this advice of the world-class doctor, you take the form, the paperwork that he has given you, you take the prescriptions that he has given you, you come home, and then you put them inside of your drawer and never look at them again. Is the doctor, world-class leader in what he does, honored and revered by the action that you just took? The answer is no. Imagine that a world-class chef prepares for you a seven-step dinner at a Michelin star, not a Michelin star, a three-star Michelin star restaurant. 
And not only do you, do you have to go to the restaurant, he actually shows up to your house, brings his own gear, cooks in your backyard, sets your table for you, brings in some servants to serve you each dish as it comes from the appetizers to the main to the dessert. And as they're bringing these dishes, they put them down before you, and what you do is you look at this dish, and you just push it off to the side. And one dish after the other piles up, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, even the dessert. Is this Michelin star chef honored and revered by the actions that you are taking? The answer is no. So you cannot say that this doctor is amazing and the chef is so glorious and praise him and thank him if you have not taken or partaken of their services. And so God, who is a much greater healer, God who is a greater chef preparing for us spiritual meals beyond our delights and a greater healer of the soul and the heart and the mind, if we do not partake of the riches of His grace that He offers us and receive them and act upon them, He does not get glorified. And this is where the people of Israel were at. They rejected the God who had all glory and power and majesty and beauty and decided to go follow broken cisterns, which were idols. And God says, that cannot be, because you are not glorifying me when you are living in idolatry, when you're substituting me for lesser things. And this is what Paul ultimately in Romans 1 says is the problem of all of humanity. They exchanged the glory of God for the glory of created things. They took the giver and they set him aside. And they took the gifts and they drew them near. And they forgot the giver. And so how is God going to get glorified? He's going to draw people to himself. He's going to restore worship. He's going to cause them to be rid of their idols and of their sins. As John Piper says, missions exist because worship does not. This is why we support missions in Bolivia and Ukraine, and there's missions all over the world, because worship is not happening where God is not known. People are worshiping the image rather than the Creator. Second, because God desires to dwell with His people. So the completing of the temple was not just the idea of building, but a place where worship to God is restored. Worship to God is restored because God desires to also dwell with His people. His sovereign work is not aimless. He works in this world to bring His purposes, which are always for our good. And my question to you this morning is, what would be your best good. Your and mine best good would be to come into the presence of God, be to dwell with the Lord. This has been the goal of God to dwell with His people right from the beginning in Genesis. We read that God creates man and woman. He's dwelling with them in the garden. He's daily communing with them, talking with them. Sin comes in through the serpent, and guess what? Guess what the serpent does? He says, did not God say you cannot eat from any tree of the garden? God says eat from every tree except one. And the very first lie was taking God's word and twisting it so that people would not believe the word of God. Whereas, once again, we come back to this idea that the elders, they believe God's word. And Eve says, no, God, God said we can eat of every tree except one. 
So sin enters into this world. God chooses one man named Abraham through whom he's going to restore all things and all the nations are going to be blessed. God preserves the lineage of Abraham and Joseph. They end up now in Egypt at the beginning of Exodus. They're prospering and they're multiplying like the stars of the sky. And then the Pharaoh sees it. He says they are overpowering. We need to murder them. God preserves Moses, who's going to be the deliverer. Ultimately, Moses delivers them. Then God preserves them in the wilderness. And at the end of Exodus, we get to a place where God is kind of completing what he started in Genesis or, or fixing it. In chapter 40, we see that the, the temple is built a tabernacle, temporary dwelling place. God's presence comes down, cloud. God's presence is there, and Leviticus opens up, and it starts with this idea that no one can enter into the tabernacle because they're sinful. This is the problem they need sacrifices to cleanse, to be able to enter into God's holy presence. There must be a covering, there must be an atonement, and this is what we see here in verse 17. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. So they are atoning, covering for their sin. They cannot dwell in God's presence. They're asking with this atonement a confession. It's a confession of failure, but also a confession of faith because they're looking back to what God said in Leviticus. What was written in the book of Moses as we see in verse 18. And so God makes a way for Israel to be cleansed of sin by giving them the temple in which he dwells, where Israel can now offer sacrifices to atone for their sins. Now, this draws us into the New Testament imagery. God desires to dwell with people. Matthew chapter 1. Emmanuel, the fulfilled, promised Messiah who is going to come. What does it mean? God with us. God lives with us. He lives among his people. Not only that, we read in 1 Peter that that Christ sacrificed himself to draw us to God, to bring us to God. We were alienated. We were not friends with him. Now we are his sons and daughters. Now, remember we said that this temple offering is anticlimactic. And the reason why is we need to compare it with the dedication of Solomon's temple. At the dedication of Solomon's temple, there's two things that are different. Number one, and I'll read it in verse 10, when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud, filled the house, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So the glory of God filled that temple. And here, no glory fills the temple. So that's the first thing that is different. The glory of God does not descend. Now, why? Why is this happening? Well, we'll get there in a little bit. But the second thing that's different is that... The offerings, although they were costly, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, yet in 1 Kings, Solomon, he sacrificed 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. This second, the rebuilding of the temple, half a percent of what Solomon sacrificed, half a percent, not one percent, half a percent. But it was costly. Why? Why so? 
because this is all forward-pointing. And we'll see that in our last section. But before we get there, I want to highlight this idea that things ultimately did not go as expected. And I want to use this as a time to encourage us that in the short 23 years, things drastically changed for the people of Israel. We, we read here that the temple was finished in the last month of 516. So it began with hard times. It continued in a day of small things according to Zechariah and various investigations according to Ezra, but it ended in triumph. So this shows that no matter how hard of a situation or how hard of a season we are in, God can quickly turn it around for His glory and for our good. Not only that, we have confidence that our God who is sovereign is going to work it out in a way where He does get glorified, and we do praise Him. This is what the people are doing. They're praising and they're celebrating. This is oftentimes how the Psalms are presented to us, worship rising out from the ashes, hardship Agony, pain, hurt, and out of this arises worship to God. Thank God for Psalms 1 through 42, the Psalms of Lament. Thank God that He has given us those Psalms to remind us that worship is not circumstantial. Worship is relational, and that we can worship Him even when times are tough. And so, it's a great encouragement also for us this morning. I don't know how often you find yourself in a place of, of lackadaisical worship, half-hearted obedience to God, but I can come there once, twice a year, maybe more frequently, where I just feel like I'm coasting in my life and the Lord has to use certain ways to zap me back into reality of, then as this is what is important in life, focus on this, focus your time, attention, and energy and your talents for my glory. But here we see that God restores this worship in a much shorter time than would have been expected. And so once again, we're asking this question, as we get to our last point, how does He bring about His providence? How does God bring about His providence? Number one, it was through God's tools, which is weak man. Secondly, it is God's ultimate desire to draw men. And lastly, God's method is to remember. God's method is to is remembrance. All of worship begins with remembrance, and you've probably heard me say this multiple times here from the pulpit, but it is true, and this is how our passage closes. There's, there's a celebration, a response to God of overflowing joy at the rescue that happened here. In verse 22, they kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful. This is a perfect way to end right, the, the rebuilding of this temple, to pause and to reflect. This is what we do in our life when the project is completed. And I love doing this. My wife thinks I'm weird. I walk into the garage and I spent like the whole Saturday cleaning up the garage, organizing it, labeling it, because before you couldn't even walk through the middle of the garage. And then I just open the door to the garage. I look around. Oh, it looks so good. I close the door. Then the next hour, I come up to the door, I open it. Oh, that just looks so nice. And my wife looks at me and wonders, like, if I'm crazy, like, I'm just admiring the work of my hands. I'm a creator. I'm made in the image of God who is a creator, and so I create things. I'll clean up the backyard, and I'll be sitting there at 
you know, our dining room table looking out into the yard, and I don't see kids' chairs and garbage and clothes, you know, and all the dirt stacked on the patio. I just see cleanness. And I look there, and I'm like, oh, that looks so nice. And I go into the kitchen, and as if I forgot, I look back again and say, oh, that's so beautiful. <sighs> Friends, this is what Israel is doing. They're looking back. They're remembering. They're remembering how good God was to them in their life. They're remembering God's person and their God's work. God's hand overseeing everything. And so this is how it closes. In the first stage, it opened in chapter 1, in verse 1, that God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. And now the first half of Ezra closes with this line, the Lord made him joyful, had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. And then the, the king of Assyria aided them. And so they're joyful because of God's work. Now, there's three elements in this, in this little section here that remind us of the past, the present, and the future to help us understand God's method. If God's method is remembrance, how does that come to pass? It happens first with the past. The past, as we begin here in verse 19, the 14th day of the first month, the return exiles kept the Passover. What was the Passover? Why did they need to keep the Passover? It was a rem reminder to them of what God had done when He led them out of Egypt. The Passover was a meal on the go. It was a drive. It was grab and go. We'll eat it later. And this defined Israel as a nation. It told them who they were, where they came from, and what God did to save them. And God tells them to slaughter a year and a half old. Sheep or goats smear the blood on the front doors, eat the meat, all of it that night. The Lord even tells them how they're going to eat it. You got to eat it ready, dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. But more than a meal, the blood on their doors is also the people's salvation. It is their salvation. And every time they remember this, they remember the salvation. The blood on the houses where you're staying will be a distinguishing mark. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so God commanded His people to celebrate this Passover meal as a yearly memorial. This meal marked the birth of a nation. Who is Israel? Who is Israel? The people rescued by God from Egypt. Who are the people of God today, who is the church, the people that God has rescued by the blood of Christ. The Passover reminded them year by year that they were a people, the only people whom God freed from slavery and made His own. This is what we remember every single month. And now God has led him out of captivity from Babylon. They're remembering the good work of God. See, friends, similarly today we remember these holidays this, these holy days, these separate days, like the day of 4th of July, Independence Day, when America became a nation. We remember these, these special days. They bring us back to the past. They are a memorial. They are a sign that points us back to something that happened, but also a sign with present repercussions in our life. And so... We see remembrance is the first thing. The exiles kept the Passover. This remembrance leads them to submission and then service. Now, in the present, though, we see here 
A couple things that are going on in verse 20, the priests and the Levites have purified themselves together. All of them were clean, so they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles. And look at verse 21. It's very interesting. There's a detail here that in chapter 3 or 4, we're talking about Israel was supposed to be separate, that no one can mix in with Israel for their God's people. Yet in 21, we read, it was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the people of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Wow, there's foreigners here. There are foreigners in this celebration. It's not only Israel. Why? Why did more exiles join? It's because of a prophecy that we read in Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is very important for us to understand Ezra and Nehemiah. You see, the prophets warned of a coming exile, but they also promised the new deliverance that would eclipse Exodus. It would eclipse the deliverance from Exodus. It would be greater than that. God prophesied that when He restored His people, non-Israelites would worship the Lord of God with Israel. And we read that in Isaiah 66, for I know their works and their thoughts and the time is coming together, all nations and tongues. So listen, God is gathering all nations and tongues. And they shall come and see my glory. So this is going to happen. This is why the servant song of Christ that says, my servant it's too small a thing that he should be a light only to Israel. He's going to be a light to the nations. <laughs> Non-Israelites are going to come. And so this is what is, is happening. It's a little bit of a foretaste of what happens in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, when all the peoples of the earth come and worship God, not only the Israelites. And so, here it is. They shall declare my glory among the nations. So that's presently happening, but again... It has not come to completion. So here we get to the future. And the future is this, that there will come a day, but the day is not yet here. There will come a day when God's glory will fully descend and be with His people, but the day is not yet here. The celebration of the Passover right here anticipates the fulfillment of the prophecies that I just read. And so this return group is, is hoping and they're expecting this is it. This is that restoration. We got non-Jews non who are coming and they're celebrating with us. This is going to be the greater exodus. Hope is alive. But there is no stoking of the flames. There is no smoke. But that is, and it's not the case here. It doesn't happen. And part of this is because of the way that Ezra and Nehemiah actually close. Ezra and Nehemiah are a perfect case study of when leaders do everything in their power to prepare for a revival, but the revival doesn't happen. It was ultimately, what was ultimately needed was not good leaders like Zerubbabel or Ezra, not an external force, but really an internal massive heart change. And this is ultimately where this book is pointing us to the future to the new covenant, like Jeremiah was saying, there was going to be an exile, but in Jeremiah 31, that there's going to be the new covenant where God is going to take the heart of stone, take it out and give them a heart of flesh, where the law is going to be written on their hearts. No, one's need, need, no one is going to need to teach one another any longer. We can try as hard as we would want, but renewal of the human heart is not something that we can generate. It is a gift 
that we must experience. A new heart that has new values, new loves, new priorities, new perspectives on this world that would produce worship to God. This is a reminder, friends, for us today that it is truly finished to tell us as Christ hung there on the cross. He said, this is, it, is, it is finished, it is complete. Emmanuel, God is with us. The new covenant is inaugurated. God dwells with His people inside of us by His Spirit, gives us a Spirit to fulfill His purpose so that we would be people whose lives are a living sacrifice on that altar. This is what it ultimately is leading to. There will be one who is coming in the future. There will be a better day. This is what Ezra's pointing towards. It's going to be a better day. One who's coming, namely Christ, who's going to be the final lamb. And what is the ultimate purpose? Just like the rebuilding of this temple, do you remember Christ said, I'm going to tear down this temple and build it up in three days? Final temple coming. Why? Just like First Peter said, brings us to himself that we may belong to him, that we may have a relationship with him. This is the Christological line. This is what the Old Testament is always pointing towards, is toward our Messiah and our Savior. And friends, this should bring us all these realities, all these truths that bring great joy in our life. That Christ restores a worship that will never be broken. And let me put it a different way. Christ has restored a worship that will not be broken. The question this morning then is, is we're, as we're talking about worship, remembering God's works, how joyful praise comes through perpetual providence, I want to close by asking you, how is your worship this morning? How is your joy this morning? Are you serving the Lord out of the gladness of your heart, how He teaches us and calls us to serve Him? Or might you be serving Him begrudgingly? And I don't mean serving on a Sunday morning in children's ministry or preaching or doing music. I'm talking about walking with Him in obedience daily. When you wake up and your life is a life of worship, the way that you spend your time is a way that honors and worships Him. The way that you spend your energy is a way that honors and worships Him. The way that you spend your talents is the way that honors and worships Him. The way that you live your week from Monday to Saturday, because friends, if we come here on Sunday anticipating that the music ministry is going to get us riled up to quote-unquote worshiping God and emotions, it's not going to happen if on Monday through Saturday we're not walking in obedience to the Lord. If we're not in His Word, if we're not beholding His glory and His beauty, if we are not living out that purpose that He created, which is to draw us to Himself so that we can experience and we can look upon Him, the one who is all glorious. And I know for many of us, we, we are walking this way. We're fighting the fight of faith. Interestingly, that's how Paul describes his ministry. He's one who is there with you for your joy. Of all things, Paul, you're, you're with them for their joy. Why are you fighting for them to have joy in Christ? Well, there's a reason. Because we're not going to have joy in Christ and worshiping Him. Ultimately, we will seek kind of satisfaction and joy and lesser things and exchange the giver for the gifts and exchange the creator for the created things. And so, what can we do if we find ourselves in this place? Well, 
we're in Ezra, but I just want to draw your attention to Psalm 51, David in Bathsheba when he sins against Bathsheba and God. He did not ask God to put filters on his phone or give him more willpower. He asked him this, Lord, return to me the joy of your salvation. Return, return to me the joy of your salvation. You see, oftentimes, or at times, we may lack joy in walking with the Lord because other things have clouded out. They've eclipsed the sun. We're not talking about the sun, S-U-N. We are talking about the S-O-N. Things that have eclipsed the sun, things that are good things that have become bad things because they've become ruling things in our life. And so worship diminishes because of that. So, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation should be the cry of our heart. It's how Israel found themselves where they were, and God restores to them the joy of their salvation through this remembering of the Passover. Remember what I've done for you in Exodus. Now, remember what I just did to you, taking you out of exile. And this leads to the second idea here in verse 22. They kept the Feast of the Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king. So the question becomes, how did God make them joyful? How does God make his people joyful? What, what was this whole section about? What's the whole first half of Ezra about? It's about how God displays his power and his glory, how God reveals his person, that he is a God who is sovereign, that his providence is powerful, that he loves and does not leave his people where they're at in apathy. Then also his work, how he's powerful over kings and over nations, and how even through opposition, he strengthens the hands of his weak people to rebuild the temple. The Lord made them joyful. How can you not look at the hand and the works of God and say, God, you are glorious? God makes us joyful by presenting himself as glorious and majestic above all kings, above all things, above all peoples of the earth. He presents himself so glorious and amazing that there's no room for anything else. There's no room for lesser things. And this is what God does. This is the way he uses to bring us back. You would say, well, Dennis, where, where, do, you get, where do you get this idea? What's well, right there in verse 23, if you look. There, there is no verse 20, 23 there. Where, where do we get this idea? Think about the gospel. What is the greatest act in all of, the, in all of humanity and all the history of man? Is not the greatest act the act of Christ, his obedience to the point of death and death on a cross? Is not the pinnacle of history the sacrifice of Christ? What God does is He presents Christ, this greatest act of salvation. Where Christ dies on our behalf, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And what God does is says, look back at the Passover. Look back at what Christ has accomplished. Look back at the person and the work of Christ. Look back at the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ that we studied over the summer in the book of Colossians. Look back at that. Look back at how glorious and majestic Christ is. Oh, and let Christ's glory shine above all the things that are seeking to eclipse your life. Let Christ's glory shine so much that you are captivated by who He is. 
And as we do that, joy is restored of salvation. And so, remember God's works, that joyful worship comes through perpetual providence. And the greatest providence is the providence that is seen on the cross. Father, we thank you for your word of life, for the living word who is Christ, the message of God come from heaven to down to earth to us. Thank you, Jesus, for displaying your glory. Thank you for showing us the Father full of grace and truth, full of love and justice, full of mercy and righteousness. You showed us what it is like to love, to serve, to walk in humility, to depend on the Father. Help us to continue to do that. Father, as we, as we look to Ezra, it just reminds us <clears throat> that your word is so whole and so complete that even then, so many years before the coming of Christ, this, this celebration of the Passover and the restoring of the temple was just a glimpse towards something greater that was coming, someone greater who was coming, who would restore worship that would never be broken. And so we praise you for that. Help us to walk in this way. Help us to, to walk in a way where we are worshiping you because we are seeing how great and glorious you really are. We pray for your help and your guidance in Jesus' name. Amen.